Hey everybody, before I start this week's episode, I want to thank everyone that is enjoying the GDUX Uni Talks that we've been running on this podcast the last few months. These are recordings of the three free live day event that we ran back in June, our first ever. We already are planning our second one since the first one was so successful and are welcoming any sponsorship. So if you are wanting your game or any type of brand awareness or promotional opportunities, please go ahead and email us at info at gamedevunchained.com and we will get back to you with our packages. If you are enjoying listening, try watching us live. You can go and tune in every Tuesday and Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time to watch our Game Dev Unchained recordings a week ahead. And also be a part of our Game School Online show, which is the counterpoint of showing techniques and practical approaches in game development. Go to twitch.tv forward slash blue underscore champs and see it unedited, raw, and way too honest. All right, that's all I have for you this week. Please enjoy today's episode with Pete Bottomley. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchained, the number one podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham. So please welcome our special guest today, Pete Bottom. He is the co-founder of White Paper Games that shipped The Occupation and Ether One, and is currently working on their third game. One of the first questions I asked Pete today was about the dynamics of working in a small team. And thankfully, he was able to give us a glimpse. High octane experience. And we knew we, we wanted to make it about mental illness and everything that we put into the games. We want to make something that I don't want to say games are meaningful, but for us, meaningful in terms of theme and emotion and impact, um, just a story that we want to tell. And we, need, we, we knew we need to strip it right back to the kind of mental health aspects, um, which kind of would, the game was critically uh, praised for. So that, that turned out to be a super positive thing and really, really interesting to explore. Um, so that's the kind of game in phases, but in terms of uh, team development, um, yeah, I mean, there was just such stress within a small team. And every, by the time you get to release, everyone is just super, super high on the stress levels and you know you need to get the thing together. But I think when you are working on a project like Ether One, where you have put every all of yourself into that creative project, um, I think everyone was just super proud of that game at the same time. So my, um, I think we always disagree and have creative differences. And it, I think it's important for people to be that passionate about certain things in the game. If it was ever that it was a lack of interest or a lack of uh, engagement, that would be a different thing. But I think when everyone on the team really cares about what they're doing, uh, you just the best idea rises to the top there's going to be frictions uh in terms of work hours but i personally take the approach of you know i kind of just try and think that you know people are always doing what they can people don't set out to kind of intentionally piss people off or um try to you know just get by by doing the bare minimum because 
especially in game development, people people can get those jobs. People can just go and work in AAA, for example, and just earn three times more than they would be doing. So they're clearly doing it for a purpose. And you know, if someone has a kid or they have to hold down a part-time job, you just kind of just keep those communication lines open and uh, and yeah, just get through it together and just always try to help each other out and in hindsight they're always easy things to say and in, when you're in the middle of it it's not necessarily the easy conversations that are being had but uh, yeah you just got to keep putting yourself into that game yeah man and that's admirable to, to have that patience uh especially with friends i think that's where it can really work for or against some mm-hmm. situation because like with friends it's not like a like a, a typical business type of transaction right there's there's more elements that goes into the relationship so there's a lot more forgivable aspects of that especially if something is missed or you're just more understanding of the fact as a business partner you're just thinking I think like, that's a, yeah go ahead yeah i think that's an interesting point in that i mean we all work together for 14 hours a day so we're friends by just being in the same room and just being collaborators and and that's really interesting but we didn't come together from a group of friends which i think is an important distinction where i see a lot of small teams kind of okay we have this group of friends and we kind of want to make a game but then there's three game designers and maybe one programmer and maybe they don't have an audio person and they need to get an, an external audio person which aren't part of the group of friends and there's kind of a weird um kind of mix um that you can find in teams which becomes unbalanced especially when you come into trying to build a team past the first game and um you've got to be super efficient and um direct with the roles that are in your team and not have the there's kind of no room for um the fluff of excess skills everyone needs to be doing lots of different things and i think that just it seems by look it wasn't intentional that everyone everyone's skills on the team just complemented everything and we seem to cover all the bases with just a few people um so that turned out to be a really positive thing and and initially it wasn't us five and and then six with dave as the programmer um it wasn't initially that we did try out a couple of other people just for a few weeks at a time you know, uh, getting a different 3D artist in or, or whatever it might be. Um, but it never really took off. It was still just me and Ben at that point, just trying to figure out exactly what we were doing. We very quickly got to the team where where we're at now and who are still at the studio. Um, yeah, that, 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 that just sticks out to me as a, an important thing because I do see teams come together just because they're friends and then they try and fill the slots based around that. But we kind of got our skill set on the team and just designed either one around what our strengths were. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, forming the team, you guys kind of looked out that everybody that you guys liked had the different skill set to complement each other because that's a rare combination. <laughs> because I've seen it myself, like a lot of times you reach out to people that we know more so than the most qualified for that position and uh i think for the reason that you said like it didn't work out because uh there's a lot of uh you're not playing with your best strengths so um you know when things fall apart it falls apart fast uh especially when the skill sets aren't there right um when you're trying to be uh, a friend externally to the studio 
uh, that's tough because you're in the kind of intense work environment of developing a game, which is super fun, but also incredibly hot incredible hard amount of work and stressful so if you're still trying to be friends external to that and you're trying to deal with the social dynamics of okay now we should be hanging out uh, outside the game time uh, we never really had to deal with that everyone's like super close to the studio but it's not like we necessarily spend a huge amount of time outside of the mm-hmm. studio with each other which I think is important I think you need your own space to kind of declimatize uh, and go back and tackle the game Right. I mean, it, it's so easy to talk about work <laughs> in like your personal life as you're like dealing with these people. And like, that's the worst thing you can do because it's just at the, the amount of stress that continues the next day. Um, did you guys yeah, always I, start I'm with so having... for that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, did you guys always start out with having everybody physically next to each other? Or do you guys try remote first to kind of before you got a studio up and running? Yeah, so that's something I forgot to mention as well, is that when we kind of came together in 2011, we were kind of bedroom coding. We were all separate, and anyone that kind of has a rough um, understanding of the uh, locations in the northwest of the UK, we currently have our studio in Manchester. It wasn't always the case, so the university that we were studying at was in Preston, and I myself are from Bolton, about 20 minutes away, which, you know, it's, it's a distance in the UK, but not so big in the US, because uh, everything is so close together in the UK. But um, we've got Preston, we've got Bolton, we've got Southport, where our audio guy NJ's from, Liverpool, where our environment artist is from, and uh, Manchester, um, where James, the technical artist, was from, and then Leeds, where the programmer was, and then Ben was in Manchester at the time, but Lancaster. Anyway, long story short, we're all external, but only about you know 45 minutes away from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just looked out in the center of Manchester, uh, James, our technical artist, his auntie and uncle are architects, and they had some studio space in Manchester, which we could afford um, for what we what we have. We we're paying super cheap rent, and it only really was when we got the studio space that things started coming online. We were, mm. you know, doing things remotely, and there was that friction. We had never worked together before. I mean, so firstly, we had never worked together before. Secondly, we had ne- we did not know how to make a game. It's not like we came out of AAA. Um, the industry are just knowing about production, knowing about milestones, how to build these games. We're only making these small, um, you know, mods or art, art tests or whatever you do at university, those kind of things. Um, I had done some work experience over the summers at university at uh, Warner Brothers doing TT games uh, like Lego Star Wars and uh, Lego Rock Band, but I, I didn't have a, a grasp of a full production by any means. Um, so remotely, there was definitely just communication issues left, right, and center. But after getting that studio space, we kind of found another gear and that was a a massive multiplier on our productivity where you know you could kind of turn around and just say oh wouldn't it be cool if you tried this and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden when we're under one roof uh, just being able to see the screens and get that energy and activity is something that i would recommend if you can afford it um unfortunately you know fixed costs you know rent um paying broadband costs energy bills all that kind of stuff can Mm -hmm add to your production costs, um, especially if you don't have much, but 
I would say definitely something like uh, a rented space where you can collaborate helps um, just energy production, just everything by a massive multiplier. Yeah, I mean, the, the advantage of being next to each other is always more fun, right? I mean, just us being creative people, we kind of feed off each other's energy. And even though you try to do remote with technology being better, meeting with each other, we can make it as frequent as possible and Discord or whatever, Slack, kind of help ease the transition. But uh, yeah, nothing beats just sitting next to someone and being able to brainstorm an issue. Um but in retrospect, though, I thought you guys have are. Uh, it, it feels like preferably in a studio type of setting. Do you have any advice for for people who aren't conveniently next to each other? Like, if you were to do it again, knowing what you know now, shipping two games together as a team, knowing the process, and uh, being a veteran developer now, um, what would you say to remote teams that just have no other way to do it? Like, if you were to reapproach that situation what would be your best advice? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because I don't have a huge amount of experience with this. So I'll take mm-hmm. all, anything that I say right now as a caveat as uh, I've not, I'm not, I've not been there and done that. I'm just mm-hmm. hypothesizing about what it could be like. And the thing that comes to mind first and foremost is just having schedules and routines. And I think more than anything, just having consistency in your production um is number one you can't be just get you can't be wondering where people are and sometimes at some point someone that you are trying to get some information out just isn't responding it turns out you know they went to the store and they they ended up turning on netflix and they they've, they've just gone for a few hours and then they come back like those kind of situations definitely happen and yeah and it, it creates unnecessary frustration so yeah having schedules and routines i think has been the number one thing for us um and that's not to say everyone needs the same schedule and the same routine um i'm a super early riser and i love getting stuff done first thing in the morning whereas some people they they just prefer to get up later and and so we don't hold everyone to like the same work hours people come in over the space of three hours uh in the morning um and, and that's that's fine because we just have you know expectation of there's a monday there's a monday morning meeting at this time and it'll last this long um and we've kind of got these production techniques down where you know we set we set what work needs to be done everyone has to be held accountable for the work but just getting that work done in the time that you said you get it done that's fine you know if you need to take a day off um you know for a a vacation or you know a family member wants you to do something on a day and, and those things are important. You've got to make time outside of the studio to do those kind of things. Um, I was definitely guilty of that through the one where I just kind of shut everything else off and just be work, 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 work. But we've kind of learned to develop these systems where um, at the studio, what we do um, is we follow a cycle called OKRs. So if anyone's interested in checking them out, OKRs are objective and key results, which is a system Google uses. So it's good for software development. And basically you set yourself an objective and you set yourself some key results. Um, 
and I'll probably write more about this on our, our blog and stuff like that because I think it's been a super efficient system for us. But basically, the higher level is that you set yourself an objective. You say specifically what the key results will be within a given time frame, and then we kind of go off and do our thing. We're, we've got a design team, code team, and art team, uh, and we give ourselves six weeks to achieve these goals, and then we have one week um, where we're doing kind of a recap in our meetings and stuff like that. So what we're doing there is we're creating a schedule and a format to say, okay, we, we need to do this within this much time to, you know, deliver this milestone or achieve something with the, the studio and the company. But how you get that done and when you get it done um, is kind of on your own time. And, you know, if you want to, do three hours of work one day that that's fine um you know we just flag that and create systems in terms of remote work things like i mean slack probably comes up a million times in your conversations but we just we use slack and google hangouts and that seems to be all we need um i think in terms of remote software mm-hmm. um things like having a calendar channel and having that calendar synced with your google calendar and whenever anyone is off just put it in the Google calendar and then it pings in Slack and it pings it in the calendar channel. Just little, little tips like that. It just makes everyone aware of what someone else is doing. Uh, and I think for remote work, the biggest frustration would be having an expectation that you can ask someone a question, but them not being there to answer it, which creates a bottleneck, but also just trying to plan your work in advance. So, you know, you're not making things up as you go and then you need to bug a 3D artist. Oh, by the way, we need this crate making instantly. Mm-hmm. Like we need it now kind of thing. And just planning in advance what you want to achieve, setting those goals. Uh, and then, yeah, just letting people achieve it um, as long as they hit their milestones. So uh, I want to kind of go back to uh, the content. So uh, Esther 1 was your first game and you are the... the the main founder that got the team and the team of bandits together. Did you have a fully co-founder. fleshed uh, co-founder? Sorry, my bad. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> did you guys have a fully fleshed idea of what the game was? Like how, how far along? Oh, no, not at all. You just had a faint idea to get together. Yeah. So like I was saying, it is, um, it transitioned a bunch and i think it transitioned knowing what we were able to achieve so you kind of ask a question knowing what you know now would what would you go and change and you know we started off with two people trying to make um just some kind of mod just get something together and ship it and very quickly we grew a team of talented artists and um designers that we thought okay we can do something really impactful here and we kind of changed the scope of that and keep bearing in mind we didn't have any kind of publishing support we didn't mm-hmm. have any marketing we just had this thing that we knew we had to create and there was no long-term vision for the studio it wasn't that okay we'll do this game and then that'll lead mm-hmm. on to this game and in five years we'll have that i mean now we have those kind of things we know the long-term vision of the studio and we know what we're trying to achieve um but that kind of stuff we weren't paying attention to and to be fair, I don't think you need to. I think you just need to be, uh, I don't want to say passionate about what you're creating, but you know, you need to um, just really want to make something. You have something to share and you have your art to share with someone um, that you think will find in, uh, interesting and at, least re- and at least resonate with them. Uh, and I think that was our goal. We just, I personally didn't have a plan post Ether 1 what we were doing. It was just make this game. It's kind of 
make or break. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, we had no, <laughs> we had no larger vision there. Well, I, I think that's a really interesting strategy because you're pretty much giving it your all as if it's your last, because I feel like a lot of studios set themselves for failure by planning too far ahead where their mm -hmm. eyes are yeah. past the present and then they lose focus as soon as yeah. a little bit of that gets wavered in their sight lines. So uh, yeah. I, I definitely sign off on that strategy, just really just putting everything that you got, having something to say, which is something that I, I definitely need to stress, like both your games, both your studio's games, Esther One Occupation is very different. Um, it, it has very strong themes. Uh, is this always an intention behind your games going forward? Is it, is it something yeah. that you, you feel like, hey, this is our strength. This is what we want to talk about. This is what we want to do. We want to make a, uh, a statement out there. Yeah, so it's exactly what you're saying. I think I don't, I, I, again, this is a hindsight reflection, so I'm not saying I would have thought this at the time. But on our first game, I don't think you need to worry about the long-term strategy. I think, you know, if you're going for investment or publishing, maybe they want to know that. But if you can make that game on your own and just bootstrap it, I personally think that's a way, way better option. Because when you release, you've not given up all the royalties to your game. You're mm -hmm. generating income as soon as you start selling. Mm -hmm. And you can build your studio off that. Uh, and I think having long-term... Uh, profit share of your game sales is the most important thing for a studio. Like you need to own the stuff that you put out. Um, so yeah, with that said, I don't think you need the long-term five-year vision because you you don't really know who you are as a team. You don't really know what you enjoy and you, may, you don't even know if people will resonate with what it is you want. You hope you can find your audience, but um, I think you should just design for what you Feel needs to be made uh, and I think people will naturally gravitate towards that so on the back end of Ether One we realized that we wanted you know these strong narrative themes hopefully between Ether One and the occupation even though they had different games you can see the evolution there you can see the evolution of the storytelling we had never made a 3D character before Atem Glass had never made a 3D character and so he yeah. he was saying okay I, I kind of want to make characters now and so the occupation now has characters um <laughs> I had made a kind of linear um, puzzle game, although the puzzles were optional. So, you know, you weren't gated at a puzzle. You could still progress without solving the puzzle, almost in a witness style um, environment. Um, I kind of wanted to do something more systems driven. I'm super interested by Arcane Studios, who make the Dishonored games and mm -hmm. who have the lineage in uh, Thief and Looking Glass and all those kind of really super interesting emergent gameplay styles that's kind of where i wanted to level up my skills as a game designer um because of course we had now unreal engine 4 with the occupation so designers had way more control over these systems that they could kind of prototype very quickly and um yeah everyone kind of just brought to the table what it is that they were interested in and like i said before everyone has understanding of concept of uh, game design and everyone contributes to these themes and narrative arcs and everyone's interested in the storytelling aspects and how we want to tell a story and um, within probably about 18 weeks at this point into pre-production on the new game and mm -hmm. you know again it's that ether one occupation and 
hopefully the differences between ETH1 and the occupation, you can see that in the new IP. So we're constantly moving forward, but we're not making U-turns. We're not changing genres. We're not suddenly making, you know, an esports game or, or something that's just brand new for an audience that doesn't exist for us yet. So I think that's important. I think that uh, designing for an audience um, for us works. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, you have studios like Double Fine, you know, who I go on YouTube and I see these trailers coming out on the YouTube channel over this last week, and they've got a few different games coming out, some external developers, but they generally do just different things. And um, that's also interesting and works for them. So I'm not saying that, that what I'm trying to say is just because we do it a certain way, I'm not trying to imply that, you know, any small developers listening should go ahead and just make the same kind of game, but make mm-hmm. natural evolutions. Um, it's just something that we find works for us. Yeah, every team have a, a certain dynamic. Like you guys are still figuring out, even though it's like the main core of six people, the team that made the first game, Mister One, to you guys working on your, uh, you know, your third game, is a different dynamic. Everyone's more mature. Everyone's growing together individually and as a partnership, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, you guys are constantly working against your craft. So I, I, I want to bring back this question of like pre-production, right? So obviously you went through pre-production with Esther One. You guys improved that process with the occupation. And now you're improving that process again um, with their third game. So what was that? What was the pros and benefits? What was the biggest difference between those three processes of pre-production did it get more succinct did it get better did it get faster you guys were were able to kind of hit the ground running um what was that evolution yeah like and i should also point out um that although eth1 ships with six people the occupation ships with 11 so we managed to grow our team from Mm -hmm. six people to 11 people so i didn't want to imply that we ship the occupation with six right, people because right. that definitely wasn't the case and we had <laughs> so much help and it, it allowed us to hire more specialized roles on the occupations development so we have uh, another uh, technical designer we have an ai designer we have another programmer and it, it just helped us um another 3d artist and we just it allowed us to um just push that bar a lot more and you know the occupation had its own development issues because it was a massive technical mm-hmm. challenge and a massive technical undertaking you know making these characters that locomote and can open doors with door handles and we just pushed ourselves technically a lot on that game um and interestingly when you say we've been through pre-production on the occupation we've been through pre-production on the uh, ether one sorry and then the occupation we actually didn't have a pre-production on Ether One. It was just, oh, wow. I guess we're making a game now, and we just started <laughs> making the game. There was no, there was no pre-production. There's no planning. It was just like, there was no alpha, beta, or anything. It's just like, right, the game's done, chip it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we did. We didn't really have a concept of those markers uh, at that point. The occupation was different, and it had its own difficulties in the before we even announced or spoke to a publisher of any kind we kind of had a a solid vertical slice of what we knew we wanted to achieve Mm -hmm. the issue is that the game design wasn't tight yet Uh, i had the high level overview of the game i knew the the main narrative beats and also had an idea of the low level gameplay the tactile interaction making everything super interactive but we just didn't have that mid-level gameplay loop 
really nailed down. And I think, it, especially when you have more programmers on the team, more technical designers, just them not being aware of what those mid-level loops were caused a lot of um, production slowdown mm-hmm. um, in our in the occupation's development. So that's something we've learned from the, the new game moving forward, and that we kind of had a big we call it a retrospective um, after we ship the occupation because I just don't like the term post-mortem because, you know, it implies something died and, you know, something bad happened that we need to try and salvage. So retrospective for us is like, okay, what did we learn? What can we take forward? Uh, And so we, you know, we had all these lists of what design can do better, what art can do better, what code can do better. And so we actually just in a a Google slides or PowerPoint, whatever you want to do, we went through, okay, we just made a sheet called pre-production, a sheet called um, production, a sheet called pre-alpha, alpha, beta, gold. And we literally listed down what we want achieving at different points of production. So now we have a pre-production checklist. We have a production checklist. We know, you know, in alpha, we want to lock localization so that if you're doing languages and subtitles, um, you know, you need to have all these things locked for localization. Um, Every, every six weeks now, we archive a game build and we gather text in Unreal Engine to make sure we're not localizing anything weird because mm-hmm. we must have spent another 15% on the localization budget by localizing debug text strings, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, just in, there's just useful production processes that you can identify, and we literally just have them in a, a PowerPoint that we can go through and check and review. And then we went as, as micro as having a level block map uh, production checklist so we know we need to kind of let design go in and do the block map don't let art touch the block map at all in any way uh, and then we kind of do a loose pass on the gameplay we throw the ai scripting in there um, we then do a modular building pass and then we do a super basic modular building pass and then add the dynamic lights for the ai so we know exactly where these scripted events are happening so it allows that environment ask artists to know where to use dynamic likes for example Mm -hmm. so again i'm getting super low level right now but i guess i'm just trying to say that we kind of only upon shipping and reflecting were we allowed to create those production markers and it's not something we even had after shipping our first game because we were six people and we didn't have those technical challenges because everyone was kind of we had a designer a narrative designer uh an audio person a tech artist a 3d artist and a programmer and then all of a sudden you have these specialized roles as you develop and that, you know, I guess going back to the kind of um, long-term five-year vision of the studio, you know, you don't need to worry about this highly documented, well thought out systems process when you're so small, because you're just going to buck yourself down when you're not even sure what you're doing yet. Mm-hmm. But as you ship, you know, your second game, those things become necessary and useful and you know, you're just making it up as you go along. Um, mm-hmm. We're 11 people, we're on our game, but we still, you know, have no idea how to be a productive studio game development studio. And you're always figuring things out and uh, and tackling uh, inefficiencies that you can make better and just uh, ease those bottlenecks in production. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, earliest memory I have while in college learning about game design and the game design document is that my teacher says that this is a document that will change and be 
pretty much thrown out from page to from front to to end right and at that point i'm asking is like why the fuck do we need to even write this uh because it's a massive document to get the pitch obviously to get investors interested to know fully as a team as a bible to kind of look back on to kind of track uh our original goal but pretty much as you guys have mentioned like it, it changes as we go like it, it evolves it gets better and uh it, it gets less and less reference in my opinion so um the hardest part at least i want to ask is that as we get the you know a team together is the beginning right getting through the prototype getting a prototype that kind of marries everyone's ideas and motivation together um how bogged down should a team feel with getting everything absolute in the bible do you recommend just getting your hands dirty roll up the sleeve and just do it uh as you guys did with ether one um and then kind of polishing that approach with the occupation i mean i I guess i'm kind of asking like for the vertical slice of the prototyping phase do you have a time boxing as a team that you guys feel is appropriate for each of these phases here yeah, and so I think it mainly depends on what your goal is. Um, if you're trying to get funding, if you're trying to communicate your game's vision, are you going for a grant? You know, are you going for the Unreal Dev Grant or anything like that? Um, because all these kind of markers will be different and have different requirements. Um, I certainly did a bit too much documentation on the occupation. Um, on the Ether one, we only really had level design documents, um, and they, they can be useful in production. I agree that the game design document isn't necessarily a thing that works anymore. I guess, again, I, I have no idea, but I guess if you're going into AAA development and you need to kind of prove, um, you know, that you've planned out the production well enough, right? Maybe needed. But let's just take the example of small teams development. Anyone between anywhere between one developer and 15, should we call it? Um, mm-hmm. What our process is now is that people, at least in our types of games, people on the team want to know the the kind of high concepts. Why is this game important? What is the overall vision for the game? What what is the tone? What is the theme? You know, just give me a flavor of that, and we will we will do you know a, a three to five page document just on you know. That, that game just as a high level beats um, I think that's a useful thing if, if you have a designer on your team just trying to communicate a high vision mm-hmm. um, and then in terms of other documentation we just I've started using spreadsheets a lot more recently and we have um, kind of a production document that links to an animation document because the animator it seems in our games animation is going to be the definer of mm-hmm. scope and budget um, because animation is super precious it can be time consuming uh, again hopefully we can get better development practices you know with things like mocap and whatever but right now we're hand keying everything we tried a few mocap solutions we're, we're just using maya and hand keying all our animations mm-hmm. um, so yeah to not go off tangent too much uh in terms of documentation it is yeah like you said the the playable prototype you just want you know something three to five minutes of gameplay in our games because you've got to communicate 
we've not got as tight feedback systems. So if you're in a super mechanically driven, you know, bottom up game design where you can literally play the game for three minutes and get everything down in that three minutes that you want, if you have a really quick um, and tight gameplay loop, it's like you shoot these things, you get the points, you upgrade, you, you do whatever, uh, whatever the mechanically driven thing is. If you can prove that concept in three to five minutes, you're focusing on getting everything super tight and feeling really, really nice. Mm-hmm. Whereas in our kind of um, vertical slice, whatever you want to call it, we're looking at more like 30 minutes to 50. We're trying to mm-hmm. get the overall tone and the pacing of the game. So we'll kind of block everything out. We'll, we have in-house audio, and I, I personally think that helps us massively. NJ was from the team from day one, and... Mm-hmm. We always get tone and sound effects just laid in there, just as placeholder, um, mm-hmm. because it helps everyone kind of see the vision of the game. Um, and then in terms of documentation, we're literally in this phase right now. So I am, I am doing, um, I do a level design document um, for the environment um, artist and AI designer so that they know the core beats of where the level should be and that's literally just taking screenshots and annotating them in some kind of documented format um, you know it doesn't have to be built lighting or beautiful and you just use blocky colors and just say like oh, I, want, I, I see this event happening here and this event happening here and of course anything playable is going to be super useful so level design document, AI design document um, we have a character design document, which we actually stole from a template from uh, a Pixar storyteller um, character design class, you know, where you have, you know, the traits and the behaviors and their motivations and, you know, um, what their history is and their background. And we try and just set the, the tone. And that's important for the character designer to know, the character artist to know, you know, what who these characters are, how they all fit together, the kind of, the range of heights and you know how everyone will fit together and the the range of characters all this kind of stuff um we don't have a gdd um yeah we just have a production document which we do build reviews in where we list you know mm. tasks from playing that build and just have little check boxes next to them um i think I is GDD still yeah. so? Is GDD still relevant to if you, I, I'm assuming you guys are still self-funding and or, or or at least maybe looking to pitch to investors? But like, is GDD still a prevalent thing in those meetings where people are like I need to see front to back what this game is about? Yeah. So again, for, if we're talking purely small teams, it may be different. You know, if mm-hmm. you're Warner Brothers or whoever, right. but sure. uh, in the purpose of small teams. I don't think they are. Um, mm. For us, we are still in the kind of pre-production. We've not got any publishing or any investment, uh, but that's what we're working on right now. We're looking to move those steps forward. So what we're planning is, uh, one thing that I forgot to mention, instead of the kind of GDD, what we tend to do is we have, uh, obviously the playable, if you can have something playable, that's that's perfect. That beats but what it, we right? do yeah. on top of yeah, yeah, and what we do on top of that is we create a 10-minute showreel of the game. So highlighting the key gameplay moments that we put in the game build, uh, we talk over it, we narrate the playthrough, we explain what's going on, um, and instantly just a 10-minute video 
will explain a lot about your game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you bookend it as well, put a nice start of the like game logo, mm-hmm. put a splash screen at the end, almost make an extended trailer. Uh, and just for reference for anyone that cares, it's it's a similar thing to the IGN uh, first the occupation trailer that we did. We did eight minutes of new gameplay. Um, where we narrate the playthrough. Um, mm. So it's that kind of thing. Obviously, that's super polished because the game was deep in production then, but we just do a super blocky version of that. Um, so we take a 10-minute video, and then we also do a three-minute video, which is more of the elevator pitch. Mm. And that um, that is, you know, what is this game? Why is it important to make? What's the hook? What are the core themes? Um, what are the key pillars that you're trying to hit? And that kind of just, you know, the classic elevator pitch. If you're only in the elevator and you had to pitch the game, yeah. what is it that you're showing? And we include things like who white paper are, who the team is, why why we believe we can make this game. So it is a little bit more uh, pitch in a way. So, you know, you see that as the pitch document aspect, but it's more video-based and dynamic. Now, we still do a pitch document, which is about 12 slides long, and that is super high-level uh concept stuff um you know again uh theme tone um game budget is important um what the game design pillars are um who the audience is you know all those things that you'd expect to be in a pitch document Mm -hmm. um but we find that video evidence actually backs pitches up way better so if you have yeah the 10 minute extended gameplay video and then a three minute super concise thing um that those two videos along with a pitch document along with uh, a budget you know some kind of spreadsheet created that shows how much the game is going to cost to make um those are the main things and then if you're getting more in depth with stuff like that generally publishers want to know things like risk mitigation so mm-hmm. are you using any third-party softwares that could break the game are you mm-hmm. shipping in any territories you've never shipped in before do you know your are there any foreseeable hurdles that you might run into uh and but that's getting more on the pitch level um so yeah to come back to your game design document no because we kind of break it into the separate elements because i don't think you can know the game design document in pre-production and you could only really create a game design document once you're you've hit alpha when mm-hmm. you you've been creating you followed these avenues that you didn't know existed but you thought there was an interesting creative idea there so you just ran with it and it turned out to be a super cool idea mm-hmm. you can't necessarily plan for that stuff you should always know the high level and be aware of where you are in production but i think a game design document locks you down to something that you have no clue about yet mm-hmm. in my opinion mm-hmm. because like I'm, I'm slowly discovering while working with smaller teams but also in my professional life you know um the momentum is everything and nothing slows things down more than a wall of text that you expect people to read and it's <laughs> it's not exciting you know especially if you're biting for people's time uh with your own team obviously you know maybe at the beginning everyone's working part-time usually after work or something that limited amount of time uh becomes so sparse in 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 attention span where uh it's very hard to keep people 
together without them seeing something being run in the game, right? Like, I don't care how much documentation you have about this idea that you have. Is it running in the game? And that's pretty much how I feel when there are, like, weekly team meetings or something uh, where there's nothing shown, right? If I don't care how much how much of a book you've written out, but is it represented in gameplay, interactivity? And even more pressing is when you're dealing with publishers, like you said, it's like their time is super limited, like especially if they're a highly sought after publisher. They're looking at stuff all the time. Can you get them in three minutes to get them interested in the five minute, to get them interested in the 10 minute, you know? And I think the way you're piecemealing is something that is um, is very true uh, in, in this time where it used to be about the GDD, but yeah, I'm starting to, that's why I question it because I'm starting to think about how important the GDD is nowadays because I can't imagine any of these investors reading through those hundred pages of documentation <laughs> uh, without first being um, interested in the game at all, right? And even if they are interested, they'd much rather see the 10 minute overview uh, of of the game itself, the team, the accomplishments, and you know the the ability that the team can deliver it or not. I mean, that's all they really care about. Can you do it or not? Have you shown me enough evidence? Like, even if they, I really have a hard time thinking these publishers actually flip through this GDD and like understand everything before they okay the the project. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of I think it's part of two different things going on there. It's the, the documentation in the way you're referring to it is the the two different aspects you've got mm -hmm. the team documentation do, does anyone on the team need anything and does the right. publisher need anything and although the publisher won't necessarily read uh word for word what's going on in your 100 page game design document it's about how you're communicating your ideas and if you do sometimes they'll want something called a, a game technical document that kind of breaks down any technical aspects of the game and that kind of gets me onto the kind of programmer aspect in the you know, with something like Ether One, where there's a designer, an artist, a, a programmer, a coder, you, you don't necessarily need the documentation because, like you're saying, everything is represented re represented in that video game. In the editor, you can see it. You can see people commit and work to Perforce, whatever you're doing there. Whereas when you become a larger team and more specialized and you have to communicate your ideas to someone else that is implementing. So if you think... When you're early stage, you are the person working on the thing that you're thinking. So the documentation should only really be for your own personal use. It's to remind you, and therefore you don't need paragraphs of writing. However, if you're a bigger team and you're trying to communicate a vision, right. say you're a game designer, you just need a programmer for this specific thing. Programmers will generally want the documentation. They'll want to know specifically X, Y, Z, every variable, what connects to what, and what is the larger vision, and what are you um, relating this to? And that's hard as a game designer working in kind of a high-level game, which is what we work in. We kind of think about the world and the tone and create mechanics around what we think the themes of the game should be whereas a bottom-up studio will think of the mechanics first and then just mm. you know fit the story around whatever works mm. with the mechanics mm. right so that's the challenge for our team because we're very um visual and tone and high level based so mm. when a programmer is trying to implement a system and they want to know the specifics you just need that documentation and you kind of we've created a language now where they kind of 
leave the system loose enough for the designers and artists to go a little bit off the rails. It's like, oh, we found this cool idea, so we're going in this direction. So the programmers have got a little bit less, you know, stressed out about changing stuff mid-production. Um, so documentation in that respect, yeah, is sometimes needed if you need to communicate your idea to someone like a 3D artist with an art bible needs to show another artist how they would do right. metal for example i'm sure you run into that all the time it's like mm -hmm. you know when you're doing this thing um you need to communicate how you've done that to someone else just to keep uh, tone vision whatever it is you're trying to communicate but yeah in terms of from a publishing aspect they won't necessarily read through every word of documentation that's why we like to do the videos mm -hmm. that being said if you do have well documented evidence of your development Mm -hmm. generally i think it's yeah. yeah i think it's evidence as you go if you're documenting okay we said we wanted to hit this milestone we didn't hit this for x y and z this is how we're going to change production if you show how you're thinking about the higher level of the development of the game that's going to show them that you have understanding about how the process works whereas if you've come to them and you just give them 17 long-winded documents and you've not actually put anything in the engine that might also signal a red flag to them yeah. just saying okay they're just kind of running in quicksand they're kind of spinning their feet and they're not actually getting in and doing the work um which is also super important mm -hmm. uh you kind of touched on this a little bit before but um you were talking about how you guys started with the core team of six and slowly expanded the team based on needs and what you guys wanted to achieve with the game how did you guys combat feature creep? Like, <laughs> how did you guys get burnt with that? And how did you guys rectify that one? Best case scenarios of how it worked out. Yeah. So the only answer there is that we started running out of money. Like, <laughs> yeah, really, that would help. Yeah. <laughs> really, no. really bad for feature creep. And, yeah. Um, so, and it's not so much feature creep in our, our case. It's not that we suddenly take a U-turn it's mm. the the refinement of something that we know isn't quite right and we want right. to do the best job in terms of narrative delivery or design like when because stories just need to iterate it's kind of like the gdd if you try and write it all and it just goes in perfectly it's never going to happen and it's right. the same with anything doing narratively that it's gonna it happens in filmmaking and like reading the pixar history books and like um obviously creativity is a massive one um that people go to but to pixar and beyond is also a really good book and it shows that you know how these films get concepted and storyboard and they just end up being bad and they mm -hmm. just need uh, the, a different direction what they thought might work doesn't and people don't resonate with a certain beat in the game or whatever the narrative just has this thing that it needs iterating on and because we base pacing and gameplay around our narrative beats it means constant adjustment and iteration so it's not that we just suddenly you know create this new feature is that the gameplay mechanics have to um speak about what the story is speaking about uh, which is a really hard challenge um genuinely it's a lack of time and money um, <laughs> that causes us to stop but um how do you avoid it um you i tend to see it as kind of tightening screws across a wall like if mm. you imagine this four by four um and you're just tightening lots of different screws all over the place you don't tighten one screw 
almost like changing a cow wheel. Uh, that mm. just comes to mind. So you tighten one and then you do the opposite and then you do the opposite. And it, if you start tightening one and then just go in a linear sequence, you'll probably find that you just finding things that you want to change and adjust. And if you've locked it down so tightly too soon, it doesn't give you that flexibility and you will lose time having to either, either scrap it all and redo it mm-hmm. or just not touching it and not really being happy with the end result. Whereas if you, there's tighten things as you go across the whole game and just slowly digging down on the details and trying to picture it at a high level. Um, that generally helps in terms of feature creepy type things. Now that also drives, like I'm a technical designer, but it drives, you know, the people doing the, the gameplay code mm-hmm. crazy because they want to know, you know, the specifics from the get-go. So it's, it, it's a balance because rightly so, they want to do, uh, create a well-coded uh, system right. or architecture, should we say. Yeah, what I found with creativity is that if you leave a, a, a room full of artists doing just artist things, like it just, I feel like it's going to fail as a product because in the end, we're making an entertainment product, right? We're trying to sell something. We, we don't want to just create art forever. And so I feel like that's where the restraints, the producer and everything uh, is very necessary for that process to kind of create things within a box. And then, yes, the money and budget and bank account telling you to stop feature creeping is actually a good thing <laughs> because now it's going to be shippable and then making sacrifices where we have to make sacrifices but not really uh, – uh, really uh, – what do you call it? Like just demoralizing or lowering the quality of the overall game, right? And I mean that th- those are the cuts and the maturity I feel like a developer has to face to be able to ship a good product on time in budget and just be out there. Um, and it's yeah, I think I, it's also I, I, necessary for the team too to kind of have that reality check once in a while. Yeah, and I think you see that in AAA development way better than small teams development and uh, again i kind of referring back to eth one to occupation we didn't take any of the code base across from eth one to the occupation because we didn't know what we were doing so we didn't activate the systems well enough Mm -hmm. whereas we're online much faster with the new game and the reason why i say that is that AAA development does that a lot better than small teams and Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully more small teams can you know keep building upon the foundations because you see a lot of the time they just start from scratch again Mm -hmm. uh, which is tough because you know you're still learning and rightly so you want you can do things better the next time so by the time the game releases the the team has already you know got so much better at how they deliver things but they just had to lock things down and ship it which is a, an important thing and the reason why i reference AAA is that you see that with things like the dishonored games where dishonored one came out mm-hmm. and then they realized okay we we know what this game is now so they mm-hmm. do the dlc the knife of dunwall or the brickmore witches and they 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 speak quite openly about okay we knew what this game was now and we can do a much more refined higher quality version of this thing that we mm-hmm. figured out how to do and so hopefully small teams can get there as well because it is it's it's a challenge for small teams mm-hmm. i mean we're, we were as small teams we always want to maximize the resources being so small but also uh up the quality every time right um this question kind of kind of pivots us to a new territory 
because it's it's a uh, it's in the middle controversy. At the same time, we're in the era where we feel like distribution of games is getting a lot easier. There's a lot of different avenues now where we can sell the game, but also it's becoming a very saturated market, um, especially with the console generation uh, switch that's happening right now. Uh, I just want your 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 own opinion about this subject um, for developers out there who are hopeful. Steam doesn't seem like it's still a have to place, but also you know the Epic Store and all these other avenues that are allowing people to kind of get in. But at the same time, you're you're in the middle of a noises a noisy market. Like what what is your opinion right now with uh, how things are? You mean in terms of um, the saturation of the market and what developers can do to get the game out there or that the gates are so open that anyone can release a game? What What is it specifically? Both. The saturated market and it's the same issue as always. How do we make noise when in a noisy yeah, area, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. And again, I personally don't have the answer to that. It is super tough for any team, whether you're one person, 11 people, 20 people, just getting your game heard uh, is the hardest thing. And just being more aware of how to market your game. Uh, again, going back to Seth Godin, if anyone's not read Seth Godin's stuff, um, he's classically known for the purple cow, but he's got a new book called This Is Marketing. You've got uh, the 20, 21 executable laws of marketing. There's just so many good. And start with why by um, Simon Sinek. It, all these things loop back to if you create something that you're really, really proud of, that you believe has a very focused audience and you're targeting someone very specific, you're not just trying to get a game to get it out there to generate revenue. You're making something you're proud of and you think someone will resonate with. I think you'll find the audience. Um, the games press are pretty good at giving exposure to things that they find interesting. Uh, and it's just a talking about the games, going to the shows, going to the conferences, getting people engaged, um, putting out high quality work. And you know, you, you're not replicating someone else's work. You, you're doing your own thing and putting your own stamp on it. Uh, and it's not necessarily an answer, but I believe that 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 will is what will help you stand out. And I'm, I've never really been the developer that has um, thought, oh yeah, Steam's open to everyone now. There goes 100 games a week being released in the same time as the occupation. Um, we were we were at the stage of Ethan's release where Steam was going through the green light program, so indie games weren't really being released. Um, we had to pay a hundred dollar fee to apply for green light, which we couldn't afford at the time. I, I remember that being the last bit of money we had. We put a hundred dollars into Steam green light. Yeah, and um, we're just like, right. We hope we get green light, and I can't remember specifically. I think we're in like the third batch of Steam green light games. That was a huge deal. It's like our game can now be on Steam, mm -hmm. and whatever issues people have with the distribution platforms, they've given you an opportunity to be out in front of a massive audience, and mm -hmm. it's not it's not up to them to promote your game it's disappointing as a developer i wish i was on the front page of steam when the occupation came out because mm -hmm. it's in front of so many eyeballs but 
you've just got to do the work, get the word of mouth generated. And yes, there's going to be algorithms involved and there's some unfairness going on that people kind of, you know, oh, if we buy, you know, 10,000 copies of our own game, we're going to inflate the algorithm to make it go to the top and whatever crazy stories you hear. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, those gates are open and we're very fortunate about that. We have the same opportunity of someone, I mean, we don't have the same budgets and we don't have the same marketing capacity as, you know, the AAA games, but we have the opportunity to put our game out in front of lots of people. Uh, and if you're talking to the platform holders like PlayStation, Xbox, um, how to speak to speak speak to people on the PC side like Steam, um, but the platform holders are out there and they're at events and they're going around checking out all the cool games. Mm -hmm. um, and same with Epic, the team are always at different events. So just grab people, show them your game mm -hmm. uh, and just say specifically what you want. Like what is it that you want from that platform to help promote your game? Uh, and I think that's the way forward. Well, thank you, Pete, for your one-hour wisdom. We are at that one-hour mark, and this is the part of the podcast where I hand the mic over to you for you to shout out, promote anything that you want. I want to thank you for your time. And, man, it was uh, – I use it usually as a very selfish hour for myself because these are questions that I'm always curious about, and you guys are out there doing it. And I appreciate your time and everything. I know we had a little wrangling back and forth, but I'm so glad to talk to you. I was a fan. As soon as I saw the occupation, um, uh, I had a lot of roots back in uh, Bioshock in my professional career. And, awesome. uh, dude, I, I saw, like, all types of inspiration, and, like, you, you guys took it to another level. So I want to thank you, and I wish you the best of luck. But enough of me. Here's the mic to you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that, Brandon. And it was, it's always tough trying to figure out time zones, West Coast to <laughs> British standard yeah. time. And yeah, I appreciate you kind of spending your morning chatting to me. And it's always, it, I always find it useful kind of speaking out loud the things that I'm thinking internally because it really helps kind of cement. So it's kind of selfish for you, but also selfish for me. Uh, and also just to be able to chat to you about uh, development of something that we're proud of that we spent, you know, four years of our life working on. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of prom personal promotion, just anything at White Paper Games, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, yeah, we, we put everything into our games. And if you think the occupation looks interesting, uh, we'd love you to just try it out. Let us know your thoughts. Send us a message. Um, and yeah, I just really appreciate you giving me an hour of your time. Well, thank you again, man. And uh, we wish you the very best as always. I know listeners out there are loving this episode. So uh, that's it. That's the end of the hour. This is Brandon Pham. I'll see you guys next week. Cool. Thank you.